This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? I can hear you well. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Let's up the volume a little bit. Right. Yeah. So just to recap, uh, you know, uh, we were discussing brokenness on our last recorded call, and then I was discussing the idea or exploring the idea of how can we use brokenness as a frame for understanding the core dynamics and relationship. And there was, also, there was also a phrase you said you'd come across yesterday, a concept. A dysphoria. No, it was um, something narrative else. Protocol. That's it, narrative protocol. That's a narrative protocol. Narrative protocol, yeah. Coming up with a narrative protocol, the idea um, a generative narrative protocol is a step-by-step -step process that generates um, a uh, never-ending story. So think about like the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Star Wars universe, in that there's a set of you know finite stories within it, but they're also part of this larger sort of unending story. Uh huh. And. Which is interestingly another way of thinking about it, that this tension between sol solving short-term problems and building long-term relationships. Long-term what? I missed the last word. Relationships. Relationships, okay. Solving yeah. short-term the, the, problems and long-term relationships. Right, and we talked about how uh, when we, when our brokenness encounters the world's brokenness, the tendency is to either withdraw or try to fix or, or control the brokenness around us. Uh -huh. uh, and that can be useful in the short term and maybe even necessary in the short term, but that path ultimately leads to um, um, I guess inauthenticity, I'm not sure what the right word is, the opposite of authentic, vulnerable, healthy relationships. Uh-huh. And so the uh so the hypothesis is that, you know, we are all broken is the starting point or the axiom rather. And that because of that, we need to um and, and so one corollary of that is that the greatest danger is, is self-deception. Um, and so we were uh, discussing right before this, you know, what is the antidote? And right. the answer is that we can never be confident that we are not deceived, but we can put ourselves in situations where we discover that we were deceived or confirmed that our model of reality was accurate. Okay. And this is this idea that this is the, 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 like we, we, it's not a yes, no question of, can we know whether we're deceived? It's a process question of how do we discover whether we are deceived? All right. And this is, I mean, one sense, this is a scientific method. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Is how do right. I know I'm lying to myself? It's making it's by by making precise bets that that can be that are resolved by some external agency. Okay. Right. Uh, I just joined a prediction market called Manifold, 
which uh-huh. you know you can literally they they use fake money um, to try to avoid some of the problems. Other people have occasionally had gambling schemes where they just bet themselves into bankruptcy, <laughs> despite uh-huh. the fact that it's fake money. <laughs> it's, uh-huh. it, it, there's no system that can prevent uh, all dysfunction, but they can at least mitigate some of it. Anyway. Um, so the idea that faith is precisely a matter, and, and this, this is the science, this is what I, uh, you were uh, at Caltech. This is what I would explain to my first year uh, physics students when I was a, a teaching assistant uh, running the labs, actually a you know, lab assistant, I guess. Um, and uh-huh. I would say, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the difference between science and religion or, uh, but in fact, the, that's not really a useful distinction. The better distinction is between good faith and bad faith. So bad yeah. faith assumes that something is true and then just never questions it. Good faith says, I believe this is true. How can I place a bet that demonstrates that what I believe is in fact true compared to the alternative? Uh-huh. And so the it, um, and you know in the scientific method we have this concept of LC99 and so this issue of reproducibility and peer review is a big deal. Um, you know this is a temperature superconductor. I don't know if you saw that kerfuffle, but it got a lot of people really excited for a month or so. Have you heard about LK99? Not present in your circles. Uh, well, you broke up a little bit, and so I was trying to track what you were saying. Got uh, a bunch of people excited for a few months. Uh, yeah, it's called room temperature superconductivity. Oh. Uh, room temperature, and it, there was a there was a, a material called LK-99 that was right. sort of leaked from a Korean research paper. And that kicked uh-huh. off this frenzy of reproduction uh, in labs around the world. And right. interestingly, one of the things that popularized it was a prediction market uh, called Manifold, uh-huh. which became one of the centers for it. And it was actually a really healthy version of hype. So a lot of times the hype cycle is driven by people making sort of these wild, untethered pronouncements. Um, uh, uh, you know, for various reasons of notoriety or whatever. But here, uh, you know, the announcements all went into prediction market. Like the, the, the central watering hole for this was a prediction market. And yeah. because of that, there was this incentive. You know, people literally had to put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. <laughs> right? Where you place your bet and say, okay, I think there's a 10% chance this is true or a 30% chance this is true or it'll be. And there's a different markets about like, I think it'll be resolved, you know, in August or in September or later. And, uh-huh. uh, and then the, you know, activity that people followed was actual scientists doing actual experiments and, uh-huh. and writing them up and saying, you know, hey, I, I, you know, I think I proved this, I didn't prove that. And one of the really interesting things that, you know, so this one on, this got a lot of attention, a lot of media, at least in my circles. And a lot of people who were not at all familiar with even the concept of superconductivity, you know, ended up yeah. really binging on learning about it. Um, okay. 
And there, you know, superconductors, you know, uh, materials, like it's a bizarre concept that this is real. Materials yeah. that don't have any resistance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of weird things that happen because of it. But I think the consensus was this is not a superconductor, room temperature or otherwise, but it is something called diamagnetic, which has properties that mimic superconductivity. Hmm. Um, and so the, the prediction markets are down to below 5%. There's still, an out, there's still a tiny chance that, you know, there's some secret sauce that this research team discovered that the people reproducing it haven't been able to ferret out. But, okay. um, but what's interesting is that like, okay, it's not superconductivity, but it's something that looks a lot like superconductivity and therefore it's easy to be misled. And until you do the really precise adversarial contrast, you don't really know. And so okay. it was just a great example of how the scientific process and the global hype cycle and prediction markets are supposed to work, right? Uh -huh. This could be big uh -huh. if it's true. You know, and it's a little bit broken in that like there should have been an actual paper that was actually peer reviewed with actual reproducible steps. Um, right. You know, it would have been more efficient, but maybe less fun. So, you know, uh, there, uh, a lot of people who've never heard about this, you know, there's probably some kid in junior high right now who goes, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I'm going to go be a physicist, you know? Uh, yeah. But anyway, like, this is what I imagine the future of Christianity is. <laughs> and this is also what I argue is the, the narrative protocol worth doing. It's like, okay, I believe this is true. I could be uh -huh. wrong. How do I right. place a bet that will either show me I'm wrong or demonstrate to others that the contrary thing I believe is actually true. Okay. And then the, the, the second thing, which is not deducible from the first, but I think is, is worth calling out as an axiom, is that Christ is the cure for brokenness. Uh-huh. And that there is a, um, and, I, and for this purposes, I'm actually going to distinguish between, it's an artificial distinction, but I just need to label things, between um, what's sometimes called the Christ event and Jesus. Uh -huh. So uh, this gets a little weird, but I think it's worth calling out because I think we sometimes get stuck on this. Like Jesus was a full human being. He was born, he was, had a childhood, he grew up, he had a job, he did stuff, and then he took on the role of a rabbi in first century Jerusalem, where he had disciples and went around reading scripture and giving sermons and whatever. And like, right. that was essential and necessary. But uh -huh. lots of people did things like that. Okay. You know, he may have done it better, uh, and uh -huh. in more interesting ways, but like that part is in some sense, quote unquote, just Jesus. Uh -huh. The thing that is Christing about Jesus is that um, A, he claimed to be God, a very uh -huh. contrarian claim. <laughs> um, uh -huh. And then he substantiated that claim by actually dying and actually uh -huh. rising again. 
And, and that Christing is the thing that I am arguing is the cure for brokenness. And sort of the ultimate bet and the ultimate validation. And the more I can approach that level of absolute vulnerability, absolute loss, uh, contrarian gain, the closer I am to Christ, the more efficiently I am uh, unself-deceiving and uh -huh. the more effectively I am in demonstrating what I guess theologians call the glory of God. And uh -huh. at the micro level, this is actually a viable narrative protocol that when I have a conflict with my wife or my kids or myself, there's a way to say, okay, the reason I'm, I am angry and frustrated or ashamed or, or depressed, you know, at least in the local context, I mean, there's all sorts of global macroeconomic forces and societal forces and biological things. I don't want to dispute the existence of those things. But I'm saying in the micro-narrative context, the most useful framing, uh, at least to start with, is, okay, there is something here where I am not being Christ. And I am stuck in fleshly modes of reacting. Wait, did, you say, did you say not seeing or not being Christ? I, I said not seeing, although it's equivalent in my case roughly to not being either. Right. Um, I mean, the mantra of, of discipling by Jesus, right, is we see Christ to be Christ. Okay. Right. Yep. Is that is that is that I if I see if I, I don't see what Christ is already doing in this situation, so I uh -huh. don't know how to be Christ in this situation. Okay. And. That, by the way, is, 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 is we had this discussion several episodes ago about like, okay, all this theological, psychological stuff sounds nice, but how do you save the world? Because uh -huh. uh, the world is deeply corrupt and broken. It's like, and this is my answer, is that I need to see Christ so I can be Christ. When I be Christ, others see Christ so they can be Christ. And uh -huh. that is how we save the world is by um, recursively Christing uh -huh. and creating a community of other people who can Christ. And so like in the context of like relating to my wife, it's like, yes, she is broken. Part of her brokenness is due to the way I've treated her and the things that I've done wrong in our relationship. Part of the brokenness is frankly, uh, you know, due to her culture and the environment she grew up in. And part of it is due to her family of origin. And some of it, you know, is probably due to her own choices she made out of that brokenness that have exacerbated or built on or interacted with all those other factors. Like that is a right. true descriptive statement. And the point is, the good news is that the details of that are mostly irrelevant. Right. The, the, the question is, okay, where is how she is broken interacting where I am broken and causing dysphoria for either of us, uh -huh. and then what are the fleshly response patterns that mitigate the feeling of brokenness by creating separation or control or whatever, 
but are doing nothing to heal the underlying brokenness. And then where do I need to see Christ so I can break free of those patterns? And then how can I be Christ to disrupt the dysfunctional responses in our relationship? And then the hypothesis uh, or the claim perhaps is that as I do that, A, I can see Christ more clearly, therefore I can be Christ more effectively. And then the belief is that if she sees Christ in this area of our mutual brokenness, that that will empower her to be Christ more effectively. Uh huh. And so that's at least, and so the role is, you know, like, yes, there is a place to recognize other people's brokenness and to recognize my own brokenness. Um, but then the cure is basically like the narrative protocol is, you know, recognize the dysphoria, interpret it as the absence of Christ, or at least the perceived absence of Christ. And then the goal is to not enjoy Christ apart from the brokenness, but to see Christ through the brokenness by viscerally allowing myself to feel the dysphoria, the pain, the agony, so that I can see what's on the other side of it, as opposed to retreating into various coping mechanisms that numb the pain or avoid the pain. Uh, and so that is my anyway let me pause there um yeah that's a lot to try and uh digest the uh, maybe a summary would be that um in in the as as we recognize brokenness in ourselves and others uh the thing the pro the that can lead us to managing the brokenness uh, in ways that are uh, helpful in the short term to resolve frustration or whatever but um long term harmful to relations the uh alternative seems to be to uh recognize see be christ um in allowing ourselves or in dying to ourselves in that context uh, for the well to to be in the fellowship of christ with his sufferings but also to allow others to see christ in us so that he can work in them in similar ways Am I tracking yeah, somewhat? I think that, yeah, I think that's good. And this is the uh, sort of the rationale behind the mantra of, of growing closer to Jesus. Right? right. I'm trying to gain his character, you know, go closer to him in my, in my uh, internal state. I want to uh, gain his behavior, going closer to him in terms of his impact upon the world. But I also want to grow closer to him, and perhaps, perhaps most importantly, I guess I can make a case for any of the three, but uh, I would probably make the strongest case for this, is to grow closer to him in relationship. 
is right. that is precisely at the point where nothing in this world feels worth the pain that I can say, actually, this pain helps me understand what it's like to be Jesus. So I feel closer to him in relationship. And that is the pride that makes this is the ecstatic union I often talk about that makes all this other stuff worth it. And the, the prayer I've been praying most frequently is, you know, God help us to fall in love with you and each other. Because uh -huh. falling in love is this, you know, biological phenomena that uh, uh, enables the, the reproduction of the species. Um, and because of that, it is evolutionarily incredibly expensive. Uh, and, you know, it makes men, you know, sacrifice themselves in, in war and, and sacrifice themselves in childbirth. You know, right. and that's how society has survived for thousands of years. Uh, not necessarily deeply moral or spiritual people, but just by sort of uh, submitting to that process, you know, the human race has survived for thousands of years. And yeah. that, that idea that there's something fundamentally paradigmatic about that, about losing yourself in something bigger than yourself. And like, isn't that what our wives at some level deeply want from us is for us to be deeply in love with them in this self-forgetting, self-denying, self-sacrificing way? And isn't the tragedy of manhood is that like, we can't actually do that or sustain that on any sort of regular basis. And yet this is the, the crazy promise and mystery of the gospel is that there's something akin to that that all these human institutions and traditions and emotions point to and that it's actually the most real thing in the universe. Uh -huh. And that everything else that gets in the way is actually uh, sort of detour signs pointing us back to Christ. Yeah. Okay, so where do we go from here? The, uh, yeah, I, the, um, I think the interesting, uh, the last thought um, is this idea of finding my role. Like sometimes role? In a, I'm in the role, the role, R-O-L-E, is the way that I find when I have relational conflict or relational anxiety, it's usually because I'm not sure what my role is. Is my role here to complain like a child so others can know I'm hurting? Is my role here to uh, take decisive action like a father so that other people can move forward so the, the situation doesn't devolve into chaos? Or is it to Christ to find this place of uh, productive vulnerability where I am you know, putting myself to the test and risking, you know, various forms of failure so that God can do something, can teach me something uh, and or teach others something about uh -huh. the nature of, about the subtle nature of Christ that was not obvious beforehand. Okay. And like, so, there's a place for all of those. Well, um, it sounds like the answer is always uh, to be Christ. Well, not not really. The answer is ultimately to be Christ. 
right? Sometimes you need to be a child. Sometimes you need to be the man. Um, but ultimately, you will need to be Christ. And understanding, like, I can't be, like, I cannot, uh, one thing I have learned is I can't surrender myself until I've made peace with myself or else I just fragment. And it ends up blowing up later, right? This is, like, I often think about how do I take the time to reconcile with myself and understand my inner child that are screaming that, like, you're ignoring me, you're neglecting me, this is important, this matters, so that I can offer that sacrifice to God with a whole heart and not just out of a sense of duty and obligation that can actually create greater fragmentation, both within myself and with other people. Because if people Uh sense that I'm doing sort of a superficial, cheap sacrifice, um, it tends to ring very hollow. Right. And so there is, I talk about it as a four-stroke engine sometimes. You know, the way an engine works is it sort of inhales the, um, the, 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 the vapor, then it combusts with explosive power, um, and then it, uh, sorry, so first it inhales, then it compresses, then it combusts, then it exhales. Uh-huh. And, you know, this process of, uh, you know, experiencing the brokenness of the outside world, confronting the brokenness within me, and then encountering Christ. Um, like, I'm still working on how to articulate this and refine the model, but like, like, we, like, like being Christ was meaningless without having been Jesus first, right? He had to go through all that steps of being a child and of being a man before he could die and be fully God and be revealed and fully God. And I think we have to go through those same steps. Like we have to be a child. We have to acknowledge our pain and our desires and our wants and our needs and, and, and face those parts of ourselves. And we have to be the man. Uh, you know, whether, you know, you know, whether that's being male or female is like, we have to make hard choices and do things for the sake of others and be aware of the big picture. And only after being a child and being a man, does the death actually mean something. In fact, the more childlike we are in embracing our own brokenness and pain, the more uh, mature we are in um, the more adult, maybe that's the right word, the more adulting we are in like taking responsibility, looking at the big picture, facing that, the more we do both of those, the more we can Christ. Okay. And so that, uh, maybe there's a fourth stool leg of that, whatever, but at least that triangle uh, is the narrative protocol, you know? Uh-huh facing my internal reality of what I need uh, in all of its messiness and glory and ugliness and doing the exact same with the outside world, seeing what other people need and what they want and where they're at. And it's precisely when the contradiction between the two becomes intolerable that Christing is the most powerful. Right. Okay. I guess childing, adulting, and Christing. 
uh, uh -huh. as a useful shorthand for that. All right, is that enough for you to chew on? Any final thoughts before we break? Yeah, no, I need to um, consider how that fits with the specific challenges I'm facing, and uh, mm -hmm. maybe another call we can uh, get into details. But yeah, but this is helpful one. for me at least to put some language around it. Thank you very much. All right. God bless uh, you. Have a great day. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye.